Good morning. How's everybody doing? I'm excited about launching us into a new series this morning. Uh, I know it's a series that, uh, you know, for most of you, you'll just, it'll be a good word for you to go and take back to your friends, because um, I know, it, you know, on a whole, most of us have got this nailed down, and it's really not that big of a deal for us. Um, so anyway, but uh, for those that you know that obedience is a difficult thing, uh, you'll have some good stuff, hopefully, in the next six weeks to be able to, to tell them. Um, obedience is one of those things that uh, I think when we hear the idea, we, we cringe. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Um, at least, th- this is kind of how I've seen it portrayed. Let me start with, like, uh, kids and uh, more so teenagers. Uh, there's this sense about... Uh, middle school, high schoolers, that obedience, they just hate it. And anytime you talk to them about needing to obey, uh, they're just like, excuse me? Well, you know what? There's this open sense of rebellion. And, and you can even see it in, in teenagers where a, as, they're, as you're interacting with them or as you're seeing this engagement, this encounter over some authority struggle or over some obedience issue, that you, you begin to see them th- the thoughts, the wheels turning in their head that one day I'll be able to have absolute say in my life. I can do whatever I want. You know, it's like once I get out from my parents, because obeying your parents is just the not cool thing to do. You know, and so they just, I'm just going to rebel against my parents because that's like the cool thing to do. Um, and so it's like one day I'm going to be able to just have absolute say in my life. It's as if like when we become an adult, then obedience is like no longer something we're called to. And we just kind of live however we choose, however we want. Um, which uh, I think deep down inside we know, because God is real, that is not true. Okay? Um, and so we're, we're going we're gonna to spend some time thinking about what does it mean to obey God, but more than that, when it's like, God, seriously? This is really what you're calling me to? This is really what you're asking me to do. Um, here's how we talk about it a lot here uh, regarding obedience. Um, anytime obedience is viewed, we, we talk a lot here about seeing things through the lenses of the gospel. Okay, and so anytime obedience is viewed from this perspective of God is up in heaven. And I think whether we would say we believe this or not, some of us have this perspective that God is up in heaven and he's ticked off at the, at the people down on earth, okay? And, like, and so we're living in such a way where, you know, God's got this frown on his face and we're trying to live in such a way where maybe every now and then we get him to, you know, crack a smile a little bit and be happy with us. And that obe- so obedience becomes this, this means to like try and get, to get God to smile down at you. And so you see what this is, is it's, you're seeking to gain acceptance, to gain favor from God. Okay, whereas when we see obedience through the lenses of the gospel, it's this. I'm absolutely accepted and loved through, in and through the cross of Christ. And so I'm working from my acceptance, not for my acceptance. Okay, and so that's something we talk about here all the time that I continually want to bring us back to. Because anytime we seek to earn the love and favor of God, here's what we do. We negate the work of Christ on the cross. Um, grab your Bibles, which I hope you have with you. Uh, if you don't, bring it next week. Uh, it's good to have a Bible. Bring a Bible. Uh, be in the Word. Um, I'm always going to challenge you to do that. Uh, Genesis 6 is where we're going to be. 
We have Bibles back here. Uh, if you want one, need one, need an extra, want to give one to a friend, whatever, uh, grab a Bible back there. Uh, Genesis 6. It's on page 6 in my Bible. Genesis 6. So, you're familiar with the the initial account of creation, okay? So in the first two chapters, God's creating the world, um, and he's coming to this place, and he's saying it's good. It's very good. And then in Genesis 3, we have the fall. The fall of man where sin comes into the world um, through the human representatives, Adam and Eve. Okay, sin comes into the world, and things begin to go bad. Um, People start killing one another, and it just goes downhill from there, and downhill from there, and downhill from there, until we come to chapter 6, And God begins to get this place where he's like, okay, something's got to be done. Okay? Um, So six chapters in and over a thousand years of world history, wickedness has taken over the world, and God's going to act. Look at at verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his, to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a second. I don't know if you've realized what just happened, but... This is, in essence, the undoing of the creation account. So God created everything. He saw that it was good. Now he's to the point where he's like, man, nothing's good. We're going to destroy it all. Okay, so he begins to almost undo the very essence of creation. And what we're going to see is after the flood, we're going to see the picture of God redoing the account of creation. It's it's pretty amazing. So he's undoing the account of creation. I want you to imagine, what, what would this be like for Noah? Okay, um... Growing up, I always had this weird perspective of this story, okay? And it was like, the world is absolutely wicked, and then in the midst of all the wicked ones, you have this one dude, his name's Noah, and this dude's like glowing, you know? And he's just like this bright, shining sense of of righteousness, and like, just in the midst of all the wickedness, you got this, this guy just like, who's got it together, right? Okay, and so... um, I think that's our tendency. I think, like, at least when I, when I always looked at this story, I was like, man, Noah did what was good. Noah did what was right. I mean, that's what the passage says, right? He found favor in the eyes of God. If you jump down to verse 9, it says that Noah was righteous, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. It's like, huh, imagine that. People actually walked with God? Yeah. They had relationship with God. People actually did that. Noah was one of them. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to see it as a sense of, Noah earned it, and he did what he was supposed to, like, everyone's wicked around him, and he's like, no, we're not doing that, no, we're not doing that, this is what God calls us to, this is what God calls us to, and so it's this sense of, like, he's earning his place, and God's now like, Noah, congratulations, guess what, one year all expense paid cruise across the world, guess what, you get to build the boat, you know, it's like, way to go, Noah, I mean, that's how I always saw it, but here's, here's where we, we have a problem. And where I really wrestled with this passage this week as I studied. When you get to chapter 9 in Genesis, I didn't know what to do with chapter 9. 
Because, now, if you're like, chapter 9, let's, let's check, see what's in chapter 9. I'm just going to tell you what's in chapter 9. You can go there if you want. But, but in chapter 9, you see the wickedness of Noah exposed. You see Noah, like, God has destroyed the flood, which we're going to look at some of that here in a second. But God, God has destroyed everything with the flood. And, and it's almost very quickly after that. And then you see Noah in his wickedness, in drunkenness, humiliation before his family. And I was reading that this week, and I'm just like, isn't that the very reason God destroyed everything? Like, What's going on with Noah? And so I'm trying to wrestle with righteous in God's sight. And then immediately after, God calls him out to do an incredible things. He's like, incredibly wicked. What do you do with that? Here's, here's kind of something that, that, that I want to give to you, commend to you. That obedience is always out of the, always flows out of God's favor. And I kind of talked about that a second, but I want to break that down a little bit. Obedience always flows out of God's favor. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever asked somebody to do you a favor? We all have. And a lot of times, we, you, hey, will you do me a favor? I love asking my daughter, like, if she'll do me a favor, because she thinks it's, like, this great thing to do. Like, yeah, I'll do favor, favor. Um, and so... But when you ask someone to do you a favor, do you then give them money for doing it? No. It wouldn't be a favor. It'd be labor. It'd be work. You know, they'd be your employee. Okay, so Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That word is grace. It's unmerited. It's unearned. So here's Noah, that, that God, in the midst of the wickedness of the world, you have Noah. And I'm going to present to you today that I believe that God had every right to absolutely destroy Noah with everyone else. Okay? That Noah was only special because God extended his grace. It's the only reason. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. It wasn't because Noah was like doing what he was supposed to. But it was like God extended his grace to Noah in such a way that Noah walked with God. And that God said, Here, here's the, basically what happened. We know how the story progresses. We know we're on the other side of it. Okay, and so we see the story from the lenses of, okay, we know what happened in the flood. We know the result of the flood. We know what God did. We see the redemptive plan of God throughout all of the Bible. And that the Old Testament and every story in the Old Testament is really one big arrow pointing to Jesus Okay, and so now what you have happening is God comes to this place and he's like, I just want to destroy everything, but that's, that's not my plan. I'm going to show, I'm going to extend my grace to one. And from that one, I'm going to make much of my name and make much of my grace. And that, that's what he's doing with Noah. That's what he's doing with these guys in the Bible and these girls in the Bible that the Bible talks about their righteousness. Like you go to Hebrews 11. It's like the faith chapter. The, people call it the hall of faith. Like we need to put that on a t-shirt or something. Okay. You go to these places in the Bible and, and it's, it's nothing more than a magnification of God's grace in these people's lives. I mean, a third of the Bible is written by murderers. What do you do with that? Except see God's massive grace. So we have to begin to see this story in this light. Uh, author and theologian uh, A.W. Pink 
dead guy, I believe. Um, he said it like this, and I thought this was very, very good. Uh, divine grace cannot clearly appear as grace until it shines forth from the dark background of man's sin and ruin. Think about that. Grace cannot be seen as grace until you understand what you deserved. So think about Noah. He should have been destroyed with everybody else, but God's like, no, I'm going to extend my favor to this one man, not based on his righteousness, but based on my favor. Now we begin to see the lenses, through the lenses of, of, of grace and what God is doing. And then God tells Noah, I want you to build a boat. I'm not today going to argue the accuracy of the account of the flood. There's many critics, the many that would say the flood isn't real, it didn't really happen. We're going to assume today that because we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God and because we believe the account of the flood is in the scriptures, that it actually happened. Okay, now I'll commend to you AnswersInGenesis.com if you want to go and seek out some of the details of it. A great resource, great website, AnswersInGenesis.com. Um, check that out for yourself. But we believe it actually happened. What do you think obedience for Noah was like? Do you think it was easy? Do you think it was hard? I was having this conversation with a buddy of mine this week, and, and come to find out this buddy of mine, um, he's actually teaching on Noah, uh, possibly right now. Um, and uh, anyway, he's about ready to complete his doctorate in New Testament. And so I was having this conversation. I was telling him about the series that we're doing, and I was telling him like, that I'm, I'm teaching on Noah. And, uh, and he goes, and we're G-chatting, so I, you, know, I, I, you, know, you can only discern so much through that type of deal. And uh, he goes, obedience for Noah was easy. And all of a sudden I'm like, God, what did I, did I miss? I mean, this dude's like about to get his doctorate in New Testament. I'm like, man, what the heck? I totally, and then I, I sent him back. I'm like, dude, you just ruined my whole series. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean it was easy? And, uh, and he goes, and this is what he said. He goes, God said, build a boat or die. It's, it's a no-brainer. Now, I wrestled with that. And I get that, but, but here's the difference, okay? Um, there's a big difference between obedience in theory and obedience in practice, okay? Theoretically, that's, that's a great idea. I'd rather not die. Let, let, me, let me lay out some scenarios for you um, about obedience in theory, okay? You shouldn't lust because it will distort God's intended view of the opposite sex. It will distort God's intended view of, of what sex is to be. And it will one day lead to addiction and adultery and the destruction of families and marriages. Makes sense, right? Okay. You, you shouldn't fight and get revenge. You should seek peace. You should seek to live in, in repentance and forgiveness with one another. You should make right your wrongs. Okay, because otherwise you're going to destroy relationships, which in turn will destroy relationships, and the world will begin to, to fight and war. Makes sense, right? Okay, you shouldn't discipline your kids in anger. For if you do, they will not understand the purpose of discipline and come to resent you. Makes sense? 
you should tell your friends about Jesus or they're going to die and go to hell. Yeah. Noah, build a boat or die. Okay, now, now all these are great. Like, I think we would, you can't argue with them. Well, how bad is hell? Like, no, we're not, like, seriously. And all those in theory are like, yeah, I'm on board. That makes sense. You're right. Yeah, you're right on. But here's, here's where the problem comes in, is when that theory of obedience begins to become reality in our lives, okay? And, and then what you do is you take God's command and God's design for life and you, you put it next to fallen sinful man, fallen sinful human beings, and what happens is your selfishness, your desire to, to get ahead in the end, your pa- the pain in your life, um, all these different things begin to wage war with God's design, which in turn exalts yourself, dethrones God, and results in disobedience. And so the, there's so much that we could look at that we're called to that in theory we'd be like, yeah, but what happens when the rubber meets the road and it's like, uh, I'm really tired right now and I'm just going to do it. Because I, I just need to. The temptation weighs in. Or that person's just on your nerves and you don't want to f- repent. In, in theory, it's great. But in practice, it's a whole new ballgame. A whole different deal. And I believe Noah faced the same thing. Okay, so back to the... Uh, Kyle, make us up some t-shirts for the Hall of Faith. Um, We'll pass them out uh, next week. Uh, Hebrews 11. Uh, I want to show you the account. Believe it or not, Noah made the hall of faith. I could put his name underneath, you know, the name on the t-shirt. Uh, check it out. Uh, I believe it'll be on the screen. Or you can turn to it. In verse 6 it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. For by faith, now faith is absolutely essential in obedience, okay? By faith, Noah, warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, so here's the deal. Let's, let's, let's play this out in our minds a little bit. God, God goes to Noah, and he's like, listen, here's what I want you to do. And, and, and Noah's like, I live hundreds of miles from any body of water. You, you really want me to build a 450-foot-long, 75-foot-wide, 45-foot-tall boat that's 1.4 million cubic feet that's 95,700 square feet. You, you thought your house was pretty big. Um, it, it could contain th- the same amount as 522 railroad cars. It could contain some 125,000 sheep-sized animals, and it took a year to build. You, you really want me to, to do this? And, and Noah's like, honey, I'll be out in the backyard. You know, it's like family work day or family work year. You know, come on, sons, we're going to build build a ship for this cruise that the Lord's given us. Guys, this is insane. Insane. 
what God is calling Noah to, there's got to be a point where Noah's like, are you kidding me? You, you really want me to do this? And, and on top of this, it's very likely that it had not rained up to this point. And you know what? It wasn't like six months in. It wasn't like that six months in, God all of a sudden like gave him a little sprinkle, you know, to kind of give him a picture of a foretaste of what's coming. No, no clue. But, but notice the passage in Hebrews 11, being warned by, God's, by God concerning events yet unseen. So he hadn't seen it. He, obviously, he didn't know what was coming. Okay? But, but here's the deal. He'd heard from the Lord. He'd absolutely heard from God. Listen, here's, here's the point. Obedience will not always make sense to you. There's going to be times God calls you to something and us in our finite, sinful minds, it's, it's not going to play out. God, what? You know, you start doing the math, you start calculating, you're like, God, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing that, that play out. But, but he began to do exactly what God had called him to and then, and then get this, I, I can just picture Noah's sons. They're like, Dad, come on. Like, you know how like, you know, teenagers talk to their dad. I can just picture how it's coming for me anyway. I already see it. But, um, Dad, man, my friends think you're stupid. What are, we, what are we doing building this boat? Like, imagine Noah's conversation with his family about what's about ready to go down and building this deal. Can you picture that? Like, I don't know if they were like on the verge of divorce over that deal or not. But then Noah's like, babe, seriously, like, build a boat or die, you know? And she's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, but, but here's what I would also say is that obedience won't always make sense to others either. It won't. Let me give you an example. So 20 hours a week, I work at Subway. So if anyone needs a brilliant sandwich made, I can work with the best of them. So I was working the other day at Subway. And uh, for the past five years, I taught at North County Christian School. And uh, a teacher from there was shopping at Walmart out in St. Peter's. Um, and she, she comes up, and she just kind of looks at me. And she goes, Left NCCS to work at Subway. It just doesn't make sense. I was just like, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I was just like, awesome. That, uh, you want to punch me on the other side? You know, like, and so, <laughs> what, what's the point? Is that it, it won't always make sense to others. I can't tell you how many times people are like, you're quitting your job? You have a, an unbelievable position teaching at a Christian school, and you just quit? Yeah, I'm going to go ask people to help me and give me money, because the economy is so good, so it just makes sense. <laughs> and I'm going to work at Subway and further, further my career. <laughs> no. Okay, it doesn't make sense. And it took a while for it to make sense in my mind. And guess what? There's, there's times when it still doesn't make sense. I'm like, God, 
I'm putting my family on this deal. And I'm planting a, seeking to plant a church that some days I'm like, God, what, what's going to happen with us? But I'm like, okay, God, this is what you've called us to. I want to be obedient. It doesn't make sense to us sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to others. People won't see it that way. But here's what obedience requires. And here's where it begins to be difficult. Obedience requires that God be your God rather than your fears be your God. Does that make sense? Because our tendency is this. Our tendency is that the things that we're afraid of, the things that we succumb to, the things that we give into, we will all of a sudden then begin to elevate those things and those will be the things that we live for. And those will be the things that we live by. And so what we do is we take God and we dethrone Him and we take our fears and what, what we want to live by and, and that becomes everything to us and then all of a sudden, what are we doing? We've just made those things our, our God. This is, what, this is what Noah dealt with. Look back at Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. What does that mean, in reverent fear? Do you think he was afraid? Oh, I guarantee it. You know, I, I don't, I want to be so careful about obedience always being this place of like, yeah, I'm just chipper in God, and I know he's just going to do it for me, and I trust him, you know? Like, man, I can't tell you how many times obedience is like, uh, God, I don't know. But, but here's, here's the difference, okay? It's taking your fear and it's putting it in its proper place. Does that make sense? Because the reality is, is that we do have fears. And we do have things that we're like, God, I don't know. A boat that big? What is rain? God, I don't quit my job? God, I don't know but it's like, you're God. I have some fears. I have some uncertainties. God, you're working on me in those things. I have those, but you're God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my fear in the proper place, and I'm going to let you be God. And what happens is, is disobedience happens when we begin to believe the lies, and we give in to our fears, and we believe the lies of the enemy. And what results from that is we walk in disobedience. That's the whole thing. You know, trying to share the gospel with people. And it's like, for me, it's just like trying to create this real awkward conversation. I don't know, it's probably just something I conjure up in my own mind. And, you know, you begin to fear rejection. You begin to fear like, you know, I told you the other, you know, a couple weeks back, I'm not a fan of, you know, awkward silence. And so it's like, let's create something awkward. Let's start an awkward conversation. Like, woohoo, this is my deal. Like, no, I hate it. It's a fear that God's working on me big time in. But obedience comes when it's like, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to let your favor on my life inform my obedience and be the catalyst to my obedience. Okay? Imagine Noah, isolated from everyone else. He's like, the Bible talks about the only righteous guy on the earth. We talk a lot here about community being a catalyst to right living, being a catalyst to obedient living. Talk about that all the time. Noah's like isolated, man. He's got his family a little bit, but he's isolated. 
And that's, and that's, that's the whole, so we talk about obedience. Man, we get isolated from stuff. We begin to believe lies and give in to fear. We don't have people speaking truth. And we've got to be so careful not to be a church that loves hanging out, that we neglect truth. And we neglect speaking truth to one another in the name of, well, let's have some fun. I'm all about having fun. But we also need to be about speaking truth and calling people back to, hey, why are you giving into your idols? Why are you giving into fear? I want you to go to Genesis 8. And I want to wrap up with the most profound reality that I came across in this past week in this story. Romans 8, we're going to start at verse 20, but before we do that, I want to say this. Obedience to the Lord and the call to it is this. It's a call to intimacy. So you have Noah that, that in the midst of so much fear, you could take yourself in whatever scenario you have, in the midst of so much fear and so much uncertainty, you have a guy like Noah who's like, God, I don't know. This just doesn't make sense in my mind. And so what, what is God calling him to? Obedience is a call to intimacy with God. Because it's like, okay, God, this doesn't make sense, but what happens is you're on the throne, not my fears. So because this doesn't make sense, what I want to do is I want to press into you. You know, for so long, you know, we've probably thought that obedience, like God is just so disengaged and he's up in heaven like, you know, good luck with that one and good luck with that one and good luck, that one's going to be hard, like, you know. And he's disengaged. No, he's present and active in the whole thing. And it's a call to intimacy. But look at chapter 8. Verse 20. So the flood has gone away. Noah's family and all the animals are off the ark. And we come to this place, the very first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful. Listen to this. Does this not sound like the creation account in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every birds of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and have dominion over everything. It's the same thing he told Adam and Eve. And so we have the account of creation being done away with and now it's being reinstated and being restored. But there's something vastly different between the two of them. Vastly different. You, ha you have to get this. If you haven't heard anything I've said all day, you have to get this because this is what makes the story of Noah the story of Noah that I never got as a little kid that talked about you know, all these animals getting on a boat. 
You have to get this. It's the covenant of grace. It's the covenant of grace. And here's what it says. The, the, the first occurrence of God's blessing since the fall occurred. So what happens is that this is the first time since Genesis 1 that we see the language of God be fruitful and multiply. Like, I'm going to bless you. We don't see that language between Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. At least I didn't find it. And none of the other people I studied found it. Okay? The, for the first time that this idea of blessing... But here's the difference, okay? I'm going to put this up here because it's so huge. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they were blessed because of their purity as creatures. Sin had not come into the world yet. So you have Adam and Eve who are perfect. And the blessing and the fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything is this idea that it's, it's a covenant of works. They're, they're perfect. It's based on the, their purity as creatures. Noah? Uh... I think it's just after this, the account of the drunken humiliation before his family, okay? Noah, on the other hand, is what? Blessed because of his acceptance and perfection through the sacrifice. Okay, this is the covenant of grace. Go back to verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And the Lord said, I'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. What is that a picture of? The gospel. God should have destroyed Noah. He should have destroyed his family. But he extended grace. He extended favor upon them. And, and, and what we don't have time to talk about is the purpose of Old Testament sacrifice, which is really just a foreshadowing a foreshadowing of the, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so the reality here is that this acceptance and the blessing that was extended to Noah and his family was based not on any sense of perfection, but on a sacrifice, unmerited. They took pure, pure animals and they shed their blood as a as a picture of Jesus. That's, that's a covenant of grace. I, I want to go back to this long quote. I'm going to put it up there and I want to read it um, because I, I couldn't say it better than this. Uh, listen to this and we'll chat through this for a second and then I'm almost done. Uh, hang with me. Uh, this is really important. Adam was placed as Lord over the earth on the ground of the covenant of works his tenure was entirely a conditional one. His retention, therefore, or thereof, depended, depending wholly upon his conduct. Consequently, when he sinned, he not only forfeited the blessing and favor of his creator, but he lost dominion over the creature. And, a discrowned, and as a discrowned monarch, he was sent forth to play the part of a common laborer in the earth. Okay, so this is the account of, of Adam and Eve and the result and the consequence of their sin, which is ultimately a covenant of works. But then continue. We get to Noah. But here we see man reinstated over lost inheritance. Not on the base of creature, basis of creature responsibility and human merits, but on the basis of divine grace. So what reinstated Noah? 
His righteousness? No. Grace. It's portrayed in the sacrifice. That's a picture of the gospel. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. For Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, not on the foundation of creature doings. So it wasn't. If it was based on what he did, it's destroyed with everybody else. But what is it based on? Sacrifice. On the foundation of the excellence of that sacrifice which satisfied the heart of God. Listen, here's what I commend to you. This is the heartbeat of Noah's obedience. This is it. And this is the heartbeat of our obedience. If we pull obedience away from this idea of what the sacrifice of Christ means to inform our obedience, that God extends favor, that God extends grace, that enables us to actually walk out what he calls us to, if we don't get that, we're going to miss it. And when obedience is hard, we just won't be obedient. We just won't do it. But this has to inform us. This has to inform who we are. Can you imagine what it was like for Noah on the ark? Here you have Noah's trying to gather all the animals. I don't know what that was like. Trying to grab the porcupine. Ah, ah. Like, how do you get like, Shem, come here, grab this guy. Like, I, I don't know how that works, but trying to gather the animals and then like get him in the ark and then like keep him in the ark. Like, can, I don't know why. I don't know. Why didn't the animals kill one another? Why didn't the animals kill Noah and his family? Why didn't Noah's brothers kill each other? I mean, can you imagine three brothers, like, inside a... That thing had one window? Like, come on, like, Noah's probably like, God, can we, can we talk about the design here? One window, for real, for a year? Come on. Can, can, can you picture all of this stuff? Okay, now, I just want to show you three things real quick. In 716, it said that God commanded them to do all these things, and then what did he do? He shut them in the ark. I don't think that's like, get in there, you know, like laughing. Like, no, he enabled the obedience. He was active in the obedience. It wasn't like Noah's like, you know, Shem, get the giraffe's head in here. Like, I'm trying to shut the door. Like, God was active in his obedience. He was absolutely active. And then you get to 24, uh, 724. It says, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, but God remembered covenant language guys that's covenant language and then you come to chapter 9 and I, I just pray this morning that God would revolutionize our view of this this sign but chapter 9 verse 8 if you're still there then God said to Noah and his sons with him behold I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds the livestock and every beast of the earth with you as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I've set my bow in the cloud and shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. We're familiar with it, the rainbow. But, what, but here's what we do. Eh, cool, that's pretty. Ooh, there's a double. But it's, it's got to remind us. <laughs> it's got to take us back to the covenant of grace. 
and all that it means that informs who we are. More importantly, who he is and what he's called us to. I want to close by reading Isaiah 54. And it's going to be up on the screen. And I'm just going to pray that the Lord speaks powerfully through this because it absolutely wrecked me when I read it. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of the earth shall no more go over the earth, that the waters of Noah shall no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Let's pray. Papa, you are so good. What what favor, what grace. God, you have every perfect reason to destroy us. God, even the fact that we're sitting here right now and that we're breathing, even if we're hurting physically or whatever, God, the fact that we're breathing, the fact that we're here, the fact that we probably had breakfast this morning, apart from every other thing, God, that's grace. That's your favor that you've extended to us. God, might this change how we view you? Might this change how we view the life you've called us to live? And God, might might we never be the same. God, we worship you. We adore you. God, lead us to obedience. Lead us to trust you and see your active hand in the life you've called us to live. And to engage you. More so, God, allow you to engage us in the difficult things you've called us to. Thanks for your beautiful name. Amen.